Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night. Sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Good evening, children of the night. Uh, You're used to it by now, yes? You hit the right button down there in the street. Santoro. Lawrence and Cecilia Santoro. That was the one. Come in, come in. Don't let the dark out. Welcome. Welcome to the Nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to Friday night. I hope you're ready for a few chills. Find a nice shadow to lurk in. There. You settled, snuggled. Remember, I have been saying that we need voices, narrators, yes, and writers. That kind of voice, too. I want to make an offer to you writers among us. Send us the first chapter of your book, an audio chapter. Well, ten minutes of the first chapter of your book or novella. Tony C. Smith over at the Starship Sofa is going to do this. I'd like to make the same offer here. When we get your story fragment, we'll put it up at the end of the show. You can introduce it, tell us who you are, give us a few cogent thoughts about the story, and then you read. Make us want more. Make us want the whole package, but make it no more than ten terrifying minutes, and we'll play it just before I scoot everyone out into the dark. Hmm? Give us a nice, clean recording and send it to... You got your pens and papers ready? I'll give you a break. Okay, okay. Send it to... It's pretty simple. Tales to Terrify at gmail.com That's Tales to Terrify, one word, at gmail.com Put... Ten terrifying minutes in the subject line of the email, and then send it to us. In conjunction with that thought, have a listen to this. One minute and 45 seconds from the starship's Mike Boris. 
A lot of people want to be a narrator. Why wouldn't they? It sounds like fun. You can bring a story to life. You can carve out your spot on the web. The problem is, most people think that all you need to do narration is a good voice and the ability to read. That helps, but if you don't want to sound like you're recording in your bathroom, you'll need an appropriate place to record in. You want to avoid having that loud couple upstairs showing up in the middle of your recording. You need to control your own audio destiny. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't have to be a professional audio booth. Just a space that controls some of the sound. Once you find a good space, you might want to think about spending some money on a better microphone. There are lots of choices. Some good, some bad. Some cheap and some really, really expensive. But even a good acoustic space and a pretty good microphone can't save you from bad technique. You and your microphone need to form a loving, lasting relationship. You have needs. Your mic has needs. You want to succeed. Your mic doesn't really care. Once you've figured out how to get along, you're going to have to clean up your recording. Most people don't realize just how noisy their mouth is. Unfortunately, your listeners will. There are some great tools you can use and some easy tips and tricks that can make all the difference. Because, in the end, you don't really want to sound like this. Thanks, Mike. You can click on that little smidgen, what's it, widget on the right side of the page and sign up for the Starship Sofa's online narrator's workshop. It's going to be on June 10th. I was one of the guest speakers in the first one of these a year ago, and, well, I had great fun. So I recommend it. Uh, this year, the instructors will be Kate Baker, taking what I assume to be my place, uh, Peter Seaton Clark, Mike Boris, Nathan Lowell. So go to the Tales to Terrify webpage and find that little portlet, web part, gadget, badge, module, webjet, capsule, snippet, mini, flake, or whatever you want to call it. It says Starship Sofa Online Narrators Workshop, June 10th, 2012, at 1600. And click on the Register Now button. Okay? You will? You promise. All you potential voice artists and writers who'd like to get ten terrifying minutes of your latest novel, novella, or what have you, up and in the nook, you'll do it. All of you who want to narrate stories for us here at Tales to Terrify. You too? Okay. I trust you. Now, we can have a story. Short fiction tonight is from Sandy DeLuca, and it comes to us by way of, oh yeah, that's right, slices of flesh. A few words about Sandy DeLuca. Sandy has five novels to her credit, Settling in Nazareth, Descent, Manhattan Grimoire from Ashes, and the forthcoming Messages from the Dead. Two of her novellas, Darkness Conjured and Into the Red, were released in 2011. A poetry art collection called Mad Hattery, which was done with Tales to Terrify's old buddy Marge Simon, by the way, was also released in 2011. 
her poetry chapbook, Burial Plot in Sagittarius, was nominated for the Bram Stoker Award in 2001. She's also the author of Paths of Destiny, a collection of stories and poetry. And in addition to writing, Sandy has been a painter for over 20 years. Her work has been exhibited in galleries, bookstores, online venues, and hair salons. Yes. She has done covers for various small press venues. Her newest novella, Reign of Blood, is now out on the Delirium novella series. Settle down for a nice creeps-in-the-attic tale from Slices of Flesh. Here is Sandy DeLuca's When the Dead Rise I shuffle through old photo albums, gazing the faces of dead relatives. They died violently and mysteriously, even my grandmother back in 2002. I'm not sure what happened to my mother. I'm the only one left. I lock the attic most nights, but come back every year on the 1st of November, waiting for the inevitable, knowing blood will be shed. And to remember a chilly autumn night, 12 years ago, when my cousin Amanda met her fate. We were both eight when she'd come from Providence to visit Granny and me in Salem, a place where I'd lived since my mother disappeared six months before. I once thought I could have saved Amanda, but realize no one can change fate or my family's evil legacy. Amanda's voice seemed distant that evening as rain poured down and thick fog rose from the ocean. I wonder if the dead can hear us, she said, as she thumbed through the dusty photo albums. I stood in front of Granny's antique mirror, admiring the way I looked in an old lace dress, a wide-brimmed hat perched on my head, and rhinestone necklaces draped around my neck. I don't like to think about things like that. I spun around, layers of lace lifted and swayed. The jewelry shimmered, catching color and patterns, reflecting on the rain-spattered window. I think about it a lot, she said, when she removed a photograph of Uncle David from the album and tacked it on the wall. I think our uncle can hear us. I tried to break Amanda's dark mood. Want to dress up in one of Granny's dresses? No. I want to look at the photos, she said, as she pinned a snapshot of Aunt Sally next to David's. I get bored with playing sometimes. Besides, I'm waiting for something to happen. Oh, like what? I'm waiting for the dead to rise. Stop it! You're being creepy! I touched her face. She felt cold. Salem, Massachusetts, was scary enough with its dark legends and bloody history. Amanda added to the uneasiness I felt. Once again, I tried to get her mind off death, but I tried in vain when I said, Maybe we should go downstairs and help Granny frost the cookies. Ignoring me, Amanda said, Wasn't Cousin Rachel pretty? She held a photo up to the light and then placed it next to other photos on the wall. Yes, she was, but she's dead now, so what does it matter how pretty she was? There's beauty in death. Well, I'm not really interested in finding out for a long time. I slipped off the dress, removed the hat and jewelry, and then made a neat pile. I'm going downstairs. Are you coming? Amanda closed the album and began to shuffle a deck of tarot cards she'd found in a box. 
She flipped them over, seemingly mesmerized with the deck's odd artwork, dark figures floating above the town of Salem. They died two years ago tonight, Cousin Rachel, Aunt Sally, and Uncle David. I was here that night, and remember them laughing and joking before they left the house. She picked up the deck of cards, shuffled, and then laid it down again. Cops found them in an alley by the docks. Aunt Sally was nailed to a door like she'd been crucified. Uncle David's heart was lying next to his head, and Cousin Rachel's, I don't want to hear about it again. She turned over a card illustrating a ghoulish figure walking through the Charter Street Cemetery, and then she looked at me and said, Don't you know they'll come back tonight? The stories aren't true. The police arrested a guy for their murders, and nobody ever comes back. She pouted. The guy they arrested didn't do it. Oh, really? She nodded. You know the story. There's something evil here, a demon, that takes us all sooner or later. It kills our family, one by one, but we never really die. Our relatives wake up every year on the 1st of November when the sun goes down. They come back to kill others and then bring the souls to the demon. Amanda, I'm going downstairs. No, wait. She held me with her eyes. That demon. It's been in our family for generations. That's ridiculous. I'll never believe it. She waved a finger back and forth. The demon is a trickster hiding in a secret place. She turned over a card. The image of death rose from the sea. His menacing skull loomed against a black sky. Dark red droplets fell from his bony fingers. Wailing specters surrounded him. That deck of cards is horrible. Put it away. Please, Amanda. She smiled, her lips curling wickedly. Ever look behind those curtains? She pointed to the rear of the attic, where black curtains were strung across the ceiling. They hung down to the floor, hiding something. Perhaps the Christmas presents our grandmother had bought. Granny spoiled her grandchildren and shopped months in advance for our gifts. No, Granny told me never to go back there. I had to get away from Amanda and out of the attic. I looked out the window and saw the sun sinking below the horizon. Soon it would be gone. Granny always told me to leave the attic before dark. All year long, they sleep on rooftops, in attics, and gables. On November 1st, when it gets dark, they come back. They take souls. But first, at least one of us has to die, too. The sky was turning a deep purple as the sun sank deeper. Stop it! I'm leaving here. Granny is waiting for us. The sun was almost gone. Amanda moved to my side, pressed her hands on my shoulders. Her strength seemed supernatural, holding me in place. She whispered in my ear, What would you do if the dead walked through those curtains? You're scaring me, Amanda. Stop it. Please, let me go. Granny knows. She's hidden them here for years. First her parents, then her brothers, now our aunt, uncle, and cousin, maybe us next, and maybe your mother. Don't you remember? Fear filled me. 
I'd heard stories for years, but chalked them up to coincidence, superstition. I just want to leave here. Darkness had come. Our family belongs to that demon. One by one it gets us all, hurts us, and then makes us immortal, and we kill. Every year it decides how many souls it needs and wants. Stop! I— The curtains fluttered, and then parted slightly. I heard creaking sounds, heavy lids lifting off rusty hinges, slow footsteps. I wanted to run, but Amanda's strength crippled me. The curtains opened. One by one they walked out, dead relatives, their eyes blazing and their lips parted with hungry grins. They surrounded me, hands reaching out, brushing my hair and lips. Smells of musk, roses, and decay permeated the air. I fell to my knees, squeezed my eyelids shut, and prayed that God would make the sun rise again, that he would make the evil in the attic go away. My relatives hissed and cried out. Amanda's voice was shrill. It's my time. The room spun, and I struggled with my cousin, feeling bones snap, hearing eerie laughter. I cried out and screamed, and then I felt something wet and sticky splatter against my arm. Fear held my eyes shut, and I thought at any moment that skeletal hands would scoop me up and then carry me away. A fleeting image filled my head and then dissipated quickly. I heard the window slide up, felt icy air on my face and howls in the distance. I opened my eyes and peered outside. My dead relatives flew over rooftops, over Willow's Pier, white faces shining like porcelain under the moon and landing on rooftops. Uncle David, Aunt Sally, Cousin Rachel, and Amanda. I wondered if Amanda heard me as her blood trickled down my arm, and then I watched as the dead crept into windows where the innocent slept. I'm here again, twelve years later, knowing they'll awaken soon. The sun is gone and the moon is high. Rain splatters windows and fog curls like wicked fingers. A curtain flutters, floorboards creak, and shadows emerge from behind dusty fabric. Amanda appears, arms reaching out to me, smiling slowly and lips parting slightly. She comes to me, presses her hands to my shoulders, and then asks, How many souls tonight? All of them, I tell her, knowing I'm the demon who waits for the dead to rise. If you are new to The Nook, Slices of Flesh is a collection of horror flash fiction published by Dark Moon Books. The book launched at the World Horror Convention this past April, and it features work by 90 of the top authors in the field of horror and dark fantasy. Cover art on the book, it's quite gorgeous, is by Mike Mignola from Hellboy fame, with Dave Stewart doing the color work. I've been pimping slices of flesh for several weeks now, not because I've got a story in it, but because the net proceeds from the sale of the book are going to aid Project Literacy, the HWA Hardship Fund, and some other causes that are worth supporting. 
We all contributed our work, and I'd like to get the word out about the book. It's available at Barnes & Noble and at Amazon, and now available on Amazon Kindle. And again, thank you, Cecilia. Cecilia is my wife and happens to be a very good narrator, and luckily she's close at hand when I need a lady voice on short order. Cecilia recently retired from teaching French, which she did for many, many years, and is also a painter, a poet, and becoming a picture taker. Thanks again, Cecilia and Sandy. A question. Um, I'm embarrassed to ask it. How did you like last week's Lovecraft show? If you weren't here, you can amend your life at any time and go peer into the archives when you get home. Episode 19, uh, am I fishing for compliments? Well, well, maybe I am uh, fishing for comments, really. Fishing to find out what you like. We're only about five months old here, after all, and I am still feeling my way in the silences. Last week's show was a departure from our Big Sisters format, a single story, an 85-year-old piece by a man dead these 75 years. No facts section, but a few comments from me about Lovecraft, a few breaths full about my personal connection to that tale. No short fiction, no poetry. I even resisted the temptation to intone, That is not dead which can eternal lie, And with strange eons even death may die. And now I did it. How could I resist? Obviously, I couldn't. Now I am looking for your thoughts. We have a forum. If you're downloading directly from iTunes or some such audio strip mall, please... Go to our website. It is at http colon slash slash tales to terrify, all one word, dot com slash. And after you've clicked on the donate buttons to pony up a few quid or a couple bucks to keep us rich in bandwidth and imagination, and after you've checked out the widget for the narrator's workshop, then click on the forum button. Go, comment, let us know. As mentioned before, this is not my own personal reading, writing, pondering nook, but sometimes, sometimes I really do want to read a few things from my own soul's archive. Uh, the Color Out of Space is one of those. So there. Where else could I stand up to the world and say things such as, The blood roots grew insolent in their chromatic perversion. Ah. Ah, Lovecraft. No tint that is not demoniac, no terror that is not eldritch, no light that is not unnatural or hideous, no lore not forbidden, no ancient language not obscene, no dream that does not lead to loss of sanity, and finally, madness. So let me know if you enjoyed it, and if you'd like more of that ilk. In any event, I'd love to hear from you about not only the show, but about your own notions of what constitutes horror, dark fantasy. I'd love to have conversations here in the nook, build a little family here in the dark. Hmm? Okay. Alison Littlewood. Alison Littlewood was raised in Penniston, South Yorkshire, 
and went on to attend the University of Northumbria at Newcastle, now Northumbria University. Originally, she planned to study graphic design, but, as she said, she missed the words too much and switched to a joint English and history degree. She followed a career in marketing before developing her love of writing fiction. She now lives near Wakefield, West Yorkshire, with her partner, Fergus. A Cold Season, from Joe Fletcher Books, is Allison's first novel. It was inspired by her winter commute to snowy Saddleworth. Allison's short stories have appeared in numerous magazines, anthologies, and such, including Black Static, Crime Wave from TTA Press, where Tonight's Tale first felt ink in issue number 11, and Not One of Us, as well as the British Fantasy Society's Dark Horizons. Other stories of hers have appeared in the charity anthology Never Again, as well as Read by Dawn Volume 3 and Festive Fear 2. Here is Alison Littlewood's 4 a.m. when the walls are thinnest. 4 a.m. when the walls are thinnest by Alison Littlewood. Stumpy Ellis told a lot of stories about how he lost his thumb, and they always seemed to involve violence and grinding and eyes. I was the only one who heard the real story, and I never would have told. Stumpy had a temper, and a man with a temper in prison is like a powder keg in a room full of lit matches. He had a shine in his eyes, Stumpy Ellis, a cold, dangerous kind of shine. It was like seeing a flat, wide sky in there, a grey sky, although the sun was shining in the yard when he stuck out his hand, the one with only half a thumb, and asked if I had a smoke. I looked at those eyes and took a cigarette from my pocket without seeing what he had to trade. If I had learned one thing inside, it was when to resist and when to bend. He muttered around the cig in his mouth to my back. Payment. I turned and waved his words away. No problem. I always pay, he said. I always pay and always expect to be paid. Sit down. I felt stiffness working up my back and into my knuckles, but he sat down himself, so I sat next to him and smelled the burning in his lungs. I'll tell you a story, he said, as payment. I waited. He thrust out his hand in front of me, palm down, but I didn't jump. Another thing I learned in prison, it doesn't pay to be jumpy. See that? he said, and I grunted. His left thumb was missing from the first knuckle to the tip, leaving a thick, blunt, flexible mound. Want to know how I did that? I grunted again. There was a guy I thought he could cross me, said Stumpy. We worked together for a while, building jobs mainly. I'd get the business in, he'd mobilize the troops. Whoever was hiring us, they paid me and I paid him. Only this one time, he came to me, he said, Ellis, help me out, I need something extra. He glanced at me, so I nodded. He took the money, and the next time I see him, he's coming out of the jewelers. And he sees me and he turns red-faced. And I knew, you know, you don't fool Stumpy Ellis, not when it comes to his missus. A picture, my missus. He breathed out a long, jagged breath of smoke as he laughed. Blonde, tits out here, legs up here. He stared off into the distance, pulling hard on the cigarette. I didn't follow him, didn't need to. Told him I was off to see about a job, something out of town. Then I just doubled round and went home. Knew as soon as I got there, window was open and this laughing floating out. I nodded, 
wondering why he would tell the story, why I didn't bother him what his wife had done. She had him on his back when I got there, her ass stuck up in the air. He sucked noisily on the cigarette. Know what I mean? I nodded. Got the shock of her life when I shoved her off the bed, took half of it with her, and her looking all wide-eyed and surprised, trying to tell me she didn't do nothing, with his blood running down her chin. He laughed, but I didn't. So he was there, practically begging, so I stopped punching, and she's digging in the cabinet and comes to me with the gun. I raised my eyebrows. My gun. My own gun. Keep it for you know, special occasions, you know. And she's holding it with her hands shaking everywhere and screaming, and then she points it in the air, only she's still shaking, and then she squeezes too hard and she fires it. And the only person more surprised than her is me, because half my thumb's gone, and there's blood everywhere, all over the sheets, all over me, and all over the little prick who started it all. And I figure, she's my missus. What sort of a man? It's his missus. So I turns around to him, my old mate, and he's laughing at me. See that, he says, and his voice is high as a girl's. See that? And he keeps looking at me and laughing. He stubbed out the cigarette, then spread his hand and stared at his thumb. Put his eye out, he said. What? I said I put his eye out. He hooked his thumb and mimed gouging. Didn't even feel it. My thumb all covered in blood and half missing. And I didn't even feel it. Seems it wanted it, you see. My thumb knew what it wanted and it took it. He looked up. Fucking never looked at my wife again. He spluttered laughter and nudged me in the ribs. I laughed. It wasn't fun. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But I laughed anyway. He nudged me again. See him? He indicated an old man, thin, with white hair. He walked in a wide circle around the yard, his eyes fixed on the ground. Librarian, Stumpy said and chuckled. If you want to know anything, ask a librarian. He's the one who'll get you out of here. What? I said. What? He says. Escape, that's what. That's the man who'll show you how. Just climb right out. He gave a dry laugh. Climb right out. I waited for him to say something else, but he shook himself. 
Another story, he said, and stood. You'll have to pay me for that one. You'll have to pay me good. And he walked off without saying anything else, swaggering his way across the yard, just as the guard called time. I knew Stumpy hadn't told me the real story about his thumb, and I didn't care. What he'd said about escape, though, it stuck in my mind, and that was dangerous. Curiosity could get you killed in prison as well as anywhere else. I didn't approach Stumpy again, but when I got my lunch, I saw an empty seat by the librarian, and I took it. If Stumpy knew something, he was a middleman. I didn't deal with middlemen. I nodded to the white-haired man next to me. Cy Jameson, I said to him in a low voice, short for Simon. He glanced at me, looked away, and said nothing. Here, you're the librarian, I said. But he went on grinding something over and over in his teeth. If you want to know anything, Oscar, I began. But he stood, pushing his chair back so hard, it rocked on two legs before slamming down behind him. He picked up his tray and was gone. It took a moment for the sound of eating to resume, the scrape of cutlery, the low buzz of conversation. I didn't realize Stumpy had sat on the other side of me until I heard his voice. He won't give it up, that one, he said. You can't just introduce yourself to the librarian. I almost laughed, then remembered the flat metal shine in Stumpy's eyes and swallowed it down. You have to earn it, he said. They don't come cheap. What does he want? Ah, said Stumpy, smiling around a mouthful of sausage and mash. Not like that. Smokes and money, they won't cut it. You have to do something for him. What, I said. Although the real question, the one I was thinking, was why... He was nothing but an old man who spent his days sorting battered paperbacks. Nothing you can do for him, not in here. On the outside, though, once you get out... Stumpy sat back in his seat and pushed his tray back with a scrape. Old scores, he said. You might have noticed, but in here, old scores go around and around. They don't break up and they don't fade. Just go round and round in a man's head, never getting any smaller. Looking for payment. And him, he'll never get out. He's a lifer like you. Why doesn't he just climb out, I said and smiled. Stumpy grinned. He'll never leave, not that one. He likes it here. He's fed, he's watered. Says he'd be happy to stay here forever, only he's scared someone would notice eventually. I snorted. I guess the shine in Stumpy's eyes didn't seem so dangerous when he wasn't looking straight at me. And I had been wrong to ask, wrong to even think about getting out. Some people shouldn't think about some things, and I was one of them. I'd forgotten that, all for one stir-crazy psycho and an old man. The joke was on me, that's all. But Stumpy was off again. He waved a hand and the whole table turned to listen. But anyway, he said, did I ever tell you the story of how I lost my thumb? There were groans, splutters and laughter. He began some story about how he'd had the tip of his thumb removed because it was easier to grind out a man's eye that way, because it was shorter, squatter, stronger. And I knew that this wasn't the real story either, but I also knew something else. If anyone got to hear that story, the real story, it was going to be me. I didn't say anything, though. I just sat and ate and listened, because prison was like that. You learned when it was time to wait. You did a lot of waiting. I guess you got a feel for it. I left Stumpy alone after that, but I always had cigarettes in my pocket, so I was ready the next time... He put his hand out in the yard and asked me for a smoke. Never leave home without them, I said, and passed one over. You don't even smoke, he said. But I'll help you out, don't you worry. You don't even have to pay me. He scraped a match on the ground and lit the cig, shielding it against the breeze, which blew occasional spits of rain in our faces. 
I was about to walk away when he gestured towards something. He's never short, he said. I turned and saw the librarian sitting on the ground nearby. His knees were drawn up under his chin, his posture that of a younger man. His eyes were a pale, piercing blue. Then I saw him reach out with one hand, and he did something with his fingers. I couldn't quite see what it was, some kind of twist, some kind of flurry, and I lost sight of his hand for a split second. Then it was back, and the librarian put a cigarette to his lips. It was lit and battered-looking, half-smoked. Never lacks for anything, that one, Stumpy said, just reaches out and takes it. I shook my head. I couldn't see how he'd done it, and I didn't know what to say. Climb right out, said Stumpy. That's what he says, only I don't quite have it yet. But one day I will. They'll wake up, and I'll be gone. He turned to me, eyes agleam. I'll show you, he said. You'll be there. You can listen anyway, and you'll know I've done it. I'm moving cell. I raised my eyebrows, and he nodded. God owes me a favor. I'm moving tonight. What do you mean, I asked, about climbing out. You got a plan? He shook his head, narrowing his eyes against the smoke of his cigarette. Don't need a plan, he said. I've got a book. His book. He nodded towards the librarian. And I made a promise. Got a score to settle. There was something about the way he looked. Is it true, I asked? Are you going? He shook himself. Everything I tell you is true, he said. Didn't I tell you how I lost my thumb? And he was away, waving the stub of his cigarette in the air, his eyes flat and grey and staring off into the distance, focused on nothing I could see. He told me how he'd lost his thumb when he grounded so deep into a man's eye it severed against the skull. The man had been screwing his wife, who was tall and brunette and had tits Stumpy paid a year's salary for. When Stumpy pulled his thumb out of the man's eye, he left the tip behind, protruding from the socket, all the evidence the pigs needed to put him away. That afternoon I lay on my bunk, staring at the ceiling. I wasn't sharing, but had taken the top bunk, so the ceiling was close. I listened to the quiet from below and the noise from the corridor, the banging, half-shouts, the footsteps. I heard when Stumpy moved into the cell next to mine. He was talking to the guards, loud and cheery and familiar, setting things down, doors sliding and slamming. Then, after it had gone quiet for a while, I heard his voice at my door. "'Come in,' he said. "'Be my guest.' He came in, his walk quiet and steady. His jauntiness had gone. I sat up on the bunk, and when I saw his face, I jumped down. "'Smoke?' I offered. He waved his hand. "'Not this time. This one's on the house.' He turned, and his eyes looked pale, the shine in them absent, leaving them watery and somehow naked. "'I, I thought someone should know,' he said. "'I'm going. Later. Tonight.' I thought you should know. He pushed something into my hand. It was a crumpled photograph of a woman. She looked about forty, her hair mousy, clothes nondescript. She had a good smile and laughed the lines around her eyes and no kind of tits at all. My wife, he said, that's my wife. He looked down and I saw that his eyes were full of tears. I got her a gardener, he said. I got her a house, a big garden. and She was always going on about it, so I got her a gardener. But she kept saying how she wanted this gazebo, a love seat, she said. He paused. A love seat. And I couldn't expect a gardener to build, she said. I was the builder, and she wanted me to do it. So I did. I got this, this gazebo, stupid word for a stupid thing. It was just a frame that wouldn't even keep the rain off, and a bench. Big enough for two, she said. She said. 
I didn't say anything. So I started putting it together, only the damn thing wouldn't go straight. And I was nailing one side together when the other one slipped and it fell right on my thumb. He looked at his hand. Blood everywhere, he said. And I screamed. She took me to hospital and they took the end off, but she kept looking at me like, I don't know. I waited. She looked at me like I was a little kid who'd wet his pants, you know, all the time. Like I'd let her down. And then later when we got home, later after when they took me away, she looked at me then too, like something the dog had shat out on the carpet. She looked. The last time I saw her, and she looked at me like that. She never visited me, you know. Never did. Not once. His face twisted. She said she was leaving. I was in the fucking hospital, and she tells me this. She'd been seeing him, her and the fucking gardener, all the time. Fucking. I put my hand on his arm and he looked at it and shook it off. I sorted it, he said. I sorted him. I had a gun. Remember me telling you that? And they took me away and they put me in here. But I'm not staying. I'm going to see her again. He punched his fist into his palm over and over. I can still see her, he said. The way she looked at me with those eyes. Those eyes. He sat there for a long time. Finally, he stood and turned to me although he still wasn't looking at anything. Not really. You know, people think it's just a bit of your thumb, he said. But it hurt. It hurt. He walked out of my cell then. That was the last time I saw Stumpy Ellis alive. I woke, staring into the dark. I got the feeling something had woken me, but I didn't know what. The night was full of noises. Men muttering to themselves... Rasping snores, guards' voices, metal on metal. Prison is never silent, even at night. It was one of those things I missed about the outside, real silence. Then there was an almighty, shocking bang from the cell next to mine, and a shudder, as though I could feel whatever it was through the walls, the floor, the bunk. The banging noise seemed to hang in the air, echoing. After that came a wet splatter, like rain, heavy droplets landing on concrete. It seemed to go on for a long time. Prison was never quiet at night, but it was quiet then, like never before or since. The texture of the air grew heavy with listening, turning to grey speckles before my eyes. I was the one who broke the silence. Stumpy, I said. Stumpy, you there? And there was nothing, not one sound coming back. Not one. I slipped down from my bunk and went to the bars, looked out into the corridor. There was a wet gleam on the floor outside Stumpy's cell. I couldn't see any further, but I heard the footsteps of the guards come running. They stopped. Then the nearest splatter of one of them losing their lunch outside Stumpy's cell. They say his insides turned to soup, someone said, as though he'd taken a dive off a building. Everything smashed up. They say his skull shattered. Every bone in his body broken, just like that. He must have jumped off his bunk, only they say he wasn't high enough to do that kind of damage. Even if it hung from the ceiling, it wasn't high enough for that kind of damage. It was lunchtime, and it was all anyone could talk about, although I said nothing at all. I just kept replaying those sounds in my head, the bang echoing on and on, and the long splatter that came afterward. The thing Stumpy said over and over, climb right out, that's what I'm going to do, just climb right out. And the way his eyes had shone when he said it. I kept glancing around looking for the librarian, but he was nowhere to be seen.
It was late before they allowed us back to our cells, and when they did, there was a black cloth hanging across Stumpy's bars. It must have been some kind of mess in there if they felt they had to hide it from the likes of us. I climbed into my bunk and tried not to listen to the silence coming from the next room, but I did, for a long time. Something woke me later. It was deep night and my head was thick with the confusion of it, night seeping in through my eyes and ears. Then came a distant snore and I remembered where I was. If there was one thing I wanted on the outside, it was to sleep somewhere out of earshot of other men's snores. I looked into the dark, the walls and the bunk taking shape. I looked at the door of my cell. As I watched, the lock pulled back with a loud metallic clang. After a time, I resumed breathing. The door was unlocked, but no one came to lock it again. It was just there in the dark, an open door, and no one to stop me walking out. Except, of course, there were guards at the end of the corridor, more locked doors. All the same, I slipped down off the bunk and went to the door. I didn't touch it, though, not at first. I put out a hand, saw the thick, open bolt, but didn't touch it. When nothing happened, I gave the door a gentle push. It moved easily under my hand, sliding without a sound. I put my head out into the corridor. I could see a shape further down, a door, more bars, dim light, long shadows. And then I saw the dull mark on the concrete outside Stumpy Cell, a dark stain where the wet gleam had been. I moved out further and saw the curtain hanging across his cell suddenly fall, billowing as it filled with air, finding its way to the floor. Stumpy Cell was much the same as mine, the same bunk, the same box for a wardrobe, but everything covered in those same dark spatters. The curtain came to rest on the floor, leaving hump whirls and shapes, At first it seemed there was the shape of a body beneath it, but then it settled and was only a curtain. I looked at the bars and saw that Stumpy's door, too, was open. I stood, swallowed for a while. Then I went in, trying not to step on that stain in my shoeless feet. There was stuff all over the floor, and those little number tags the forensics boys put down before they take pictures. It was like seeing two rooms, the one that had been over, investigated, and underneath it, the room where Stumpy lived and slept and shat. Used to, I corrected myself. There was a radio on the floor, and I half expected the little dial to light and some song to creep into the room under my feet. And that was when the hairs on my arms started to prickle. But it didn't light up. It didn't make a sound. I looked some more. Stumpy's uniform hanging in the box just like mine. His stuff underneath that, a couple of pictures, a newspaper, a book. A book. I picked my way over there, half expecting to hear the door lock behind me, but nothing happened. I just went over there and nothing happened and I picked up the book. The cover was some kind of cloth, rough under my fingers. I ran my hand over it and felt grooves, lettering I couldn't make out. A dark sliver of thread was tucked into the pages. I stroked the cover. A stain had soaked into it and I pulled my hand away. My thumb felt damp, just the tip, and I stared at it. I turned, and that was when I saw the rope. It hung there in the middle of the room. When I looked straight at it, though, it was gone. I tilted my head. I could feel those prickles again, but this time they ran all the way down my back, like little hands, unwelcome hands. I started to edge my way back out of the cell, trying not to step in anything that looked wet. All the time I looked at that space in the middle of the room, looked up. The ceiling was featureless. There was nothing to hang a rope from. Anyway, it had been low down, as though hanging upward from the floor, just a few f- few feet off of it, and then nothing. 
As I pieced it together in my mind, I thought I saw it again, just for a moment. Mom pressed up against the cell door and almost cried out. I tucked the book under my arm and slipped out of Stumpy's cell, down the corridor and back into my room. I tucked the book under the sheets of the bottom bunk and climbed into bed, pulled the sheets over my body and lay awake, this time trying not to think of the book somewhere beneath me in the dark. The book was a joke. It had to be. I turned it over in my hands. There was no stamp inside, nothing to show it belonged to the prison library, no publisher's mark. The first pages were blank. All of them were yellowed and foxed, the edges rough and uneven. Inside, the writing was tiny and it was in script, handwritten, not printed. The ink had faded to a pale brown. The pages seemed to be full of magic tricks. There were small, hand-drawn diagrams of cards and dice and coins, coffin-shaped boxes and saws, ropes and knots and means of escaping them. And there, on the page with the fabric bookmark, the Indian rope trick and secrets thereof. How to make space where there is no space, rope where there is no rope. How to feel with your mind for what you need and reach out and take it. There was a lot of stuff about dimensions, about how the things you needed were all there somewhere. Somewhere there was a rope, somewhere a door. About bending things with your mind until what's there is also here. Think of a reason, it said. Think of a reason and the rope will answer. Hold it in your mind as you climb, and the rope will not fail. Hold it in your mind, not the rope itself or the journey, but the destination. At the bottom, a note had been added. It was in rough, spiky writing and blue ink, and I could almost picture Stumpy forming the letters, his tongue poking out of his mouth. Go at 4 a.m. when the walls are thinnest. I snapped at the book closed and stared at the wall of my ceiling. Smiled and shook my head as though Stumpy was having one last laugh. Did I ever tell you how I lost my thumb? And then I started to dream of it, walking with my back straight, looking people in the eye, a free man, tasting the air, just climbing out, climbing right on out. And a rope, seen for a moment from the corner of my eye, hanging from nothing in the middle of a cell. Think of a reason and the rope will answer. What reason had Stumpy that could be strong enough? All he had was revenge. I saw again the way he talked about his wife and eyes and grinding, all the time staring at that thumb of his, his obsession. But it hadn't been strong enough to get him out. I had no thoughts of revenge. Everyone I hated was already dead. I had no love either. No one waiting. So I tried to think about why. And what came to my mind was a park. A soft green park where people sat in the sun. They splotched the grass in twos or threes or fours, talking and laughing, the girls wearing white halter tops so you could see their shapes beneath. I stood there. I would stand there, and I would turn my face up to the sun and breathe. Only that. His insides had turned to soup. In the cell next to mine was a rope. It hung in the air beneath a blank ceiling. I looked again at the book, and in that second, just in the corner of my eye, it looked as though the tip of my thumb was gone, my left thumb, from the middle knuckle to the nail, leaving only a thick, flexible stump. I pulled my hand back, dropping the book. I should burn the thing, I thought. Take a match, strike it on the concrete floor, and burn the damn thing right here in my cell. But I didn't strike the match, and I didn't burn it. 
What I did was slip it back beneath the sheets of the bottom bunk, then sat down and stared at the wall for a long time. Some people shouldn't think of some things. I knew that. I was one of those people. Waiting. I was good at waiting. But somewhere in the cell next to mine was a rope. Go at 4 a.m. when the walls are thinnest. I swallowed. However stupid the idea of the rope, it was too late. I knew I couldn't let it go. And it wouldn't let go of me. The cell door wouldn't open. I tried to slide it and it wouldn't move. I got my weight behind it and pushed hard, but it wouldn't move. Of all the things that occurred to me might go wrong, I never once thought that the door wouldn't open. I glanced at the clock. It was 4.03 a.m. Kicked the door and still wouldn't open. I sat down on the bottom bunk and felt the book beneath the sheets. All the air went out of me and I sat like that, my head down, for what seemed a long time. When I looked at the clock again, though, it said 4.07. The rope, I thought. I had to get to the rope. Now, when the walls were thinnest. I reached out and put my palm to the wall between my cell and Stumpy's. It felt thick and solid and cold. And then it came to me. It had to be mine. Whatever this was, whatever crazy game, it had to be my reason and my rope. I closed my eyes and saw the park. A group of kids were playing frisbee by the lake. The frisbee spun too high out over the water and was snatched from the air by a young lad who fell back to earth, laughing. I opened my eyes and the rope was there. It hung in the middle of the floor, a strong, thick rope in a little pool of spring light. I dropped to the floor and knelt by it, but I didn't touch it, not yet. I put my hand into that light, feeling it on my skin. And then I saw my hand, really saw it, and drew in a sharp, hissing breath. My thumb was gone, my left thumb. Not all of it, just the part from the middle knuckle to the tip. I turned it in the light, and it was a short, thick stump. Pulled it out, my hand was whole again. I grabbed the rope, pulled on it, and held it. It was a strong rope, a good rope. But there was a sour, sick taste in the back of my throat and I wondered just how far away Stumpy was. Dimensions, the book had said, bending things with your mind so that what is there is also here. What if Stumpy didn't fall? Not really. What if he climbed until he found a door? Only it didn't lead to a park or a house or a gazebo. It led to a place, a little like this, and through the door was someone a little like him. And he bent things with his mind and turned them, and he changed places. Because at this time of night, at 4 a.m., it seemed the walls between were thin. I could feel it, like I could taste that sour taste in my mouth. They were thin, and in that moment, it didn't seem like Stumpy had gone very far at all. I swallowed. Stumpy believed in payment. You always had to pay for things, even if it was just a story. It was what he saw as right, his way of slapping meaning on the world. What had he said? I always pay. I always pay and I always expect to be paid. Now I had to pay. I had Stumpy's book after all. And I thought of his wife with the gardener, grinning, laughing while Stumpy worked on a gazebo, making a love seat just big enough for two. I closed my eyes and thought of hitting and eyes and grinding. And in the middle of it all, a rope. I thought then how lucky it was that Stumpy had shown me that picture, 
the photograph of his wife. How lucky it was I knew what she looked like, because I had a feeling I'd be paying her a visit real soon, and then we'd have a chat, a quiet little chat, me and Stumpy's wife. Payment. I looked up, swallowed hard, trying to get rid of that taste, and I tried the rope once more. It was solid. So I took hold and lifted my feet from the floor and wrapped them around it. I closed my eyes, then opened them again, but didn't look down. I saw only that park, the sunshine, felt the clean air in my lungs. I saw them and held them in my mind, and I started to climb. Thank you for that, Allison. Allison Littlewood uh, has a wonderful capacity in her fiction to take a a day-to-day reality and let you just catch a glimpse into a place that's infused with mystery and and the downright strange. 4 a.m. when the walls are thinnest was read to us tonight by Gareth McComsky. Gareth of himself says, quote, I am a proudly South African internationalized web developer living in Johannesburg. He has a delight in reading, and that currently fills his wall with paperbacks and his tablet with digital prose. And he says, when I can tear myself away from the wonderful worlds in text, I tend to dive into the wonderful worlds of pixels, where he gets the opportunity to take part in the occasional sojourn through a spine-chilling dark manner. And not to mention being able to share these experiences with his equivalently geekish girlfriend. Those are his words. Sorry, geekish girlfriend. My cat, however, can never be bothered and likes to play distraction for my digital foes at every opportunity. We all know about cats. So thank you, Gareth. Hope you come by again soon. And, well, that's it for the evening. I hope you've enjoyed your visit. If you're a writer, I hope you'll send us the first ten minutes or so of your latest book. If you're a narrator-to-be, I hope you'll consider the Starship Sofa's Narrator's Workshop. If you're a reader, I hope you'll pick up a copy or three of Slices of Flesh. And if you're here now, I hope you'll be here next week. So, take your time heading home. Doors open. It's dark and quiet tonight. Listen. The side streets are even quieter. You'll be able to hear your own and any other footfalls that might be following, but you'll make it home. And when you get there, you'll stop by the Tales to Terrify sight, and, well, you know what you've got to do, right? And you'll do it before you pull up the covers and close your eyes and slip into some pleasant dream. Mm-hmm. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.